and welcome to The Schism. This podcast is all about critical thinking, dot connecting, the nature of reality, and trying to uncover the truth about the world we live in, society, who we are, and where we come from. Hello and welcome to The Schism. I'm joined once again by my co-host Adam. Hello everyone. And in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine and taking a deep dive into the long and bloody history between the two. And this is something that's been going on for a long, long time. And Adam, you, you took a real deep dive into this recently, right? So it's been going on a lot longer than most people realise. Yeah. I mean, the strangest thing about this, mate, is the history's out there. It's not like this has been hidden for us, like some esoteric knowledge, like, oh, they'll never know what happened. It's... You don't need to call Officer Feely in. Oh, no. Although I'm sure Michael would have a great take on it. But no, all the evidence, uh, empirical evidence, I, I would add, is out there. Simply on the internet, and if you do your history well enough, you will understand why this conflict has been going on as long as it has been going on, and also why it's not actually been stopped. Not at one point did anyone go, I think you guys should stop killing each other. Let's knock this on the head. Yeah, a lot of people did for a long, long time. Maybe we've had enough. But no, no, due to certain powers, Americans, that have kept this uh, conflict alive, we have to know where it actually first started. Because this region has been at conflict with itself for a long time. Even back in tribal days, way before real, even Ottoman rule, um, this area, whether it's Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, they're a very precious area of land. You know, if you think when it comes to crusades and, you know, the holy lands and all that Richard the Lionheart stuff. See, Christians can massacre people too. But yeah, you have to go back actually to the Pico-Sykes Agreement. This was before the Balfour Declaration of 1917, a little bit before that, about a year just before, in 1916. In the middle of the World War I, dude, basically, the Ottomans were losing in the south of Europe. The Allied powers, which is Russia, England and France, the Americans weren't in the war, the First World War, not till the very end, and there's a reason behind that, which we'll get to very shortly. But ultimately, you had those with the Allied powers, and then we had Austro-Hungary, we had Germany and Bulgaria, and they were called the Central Powers, mainly because they went like through the centre of Europe. Right. There's like two allied sides on each side of it, almost. So, during the First World War, the British, the Russians, and the French had an agreement. first agreement was called the Constantinople Agreement. And this was basically Russia's way of having access to the warm waters of the Red Sea and the Mediterranean through the Black Sea at the end because Russia didn't have any access to these trading routes. British already owned Egypt, or one side of the Suez Canal anyway. And they sort of, Russia's idea was, well, you know, you've got a bit of land down there, a bit of control, we want some influence. And because of this agreement between the three allied powers, the Russians were certain that the British and the French would honor this agreement and not go behind their back and try any naughty business. But this is the British we're talking about, mate. Come on. Are we really going to give away all that lovely land, you know, down in the southern eastern part of Europe for free? No, 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 no. We can have a little bargaining chip here. So, basically, they knew they're not going to bargain with the Russians. That's going to be hard. So let's bargain with the French. <laughs> we always push the French about, don't we? 
So basically, that is ultimately what started to happen. The French government and the British government were looking at the, the losses the Ottomans were having in southern Europe, and they were like, we need to start speaking without the Russians and deciding who gets what land at the end of the First World War. Bear in mm. mind, the Ottoman Empire was huge, dude. Like, if you look at, have you ever looked at an old map of Europe, like World War One, and then look at the Europe, European map now? Right, there's, no. there's about 50 new countries. Wow. You know, so many countries didn't exist before World War One. I. I mean, you might remember Yugoslavia from mm. the 80s. Yeah. Slobodan Milosevic. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Slobodan on my what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the vicious warlord, the Bosnian guy. Right, yeah. Yeah, so always that region under a lot of stress. But the French and the British decided they were going to select two people to carry out these negotiations. And these negotiations, of effect, were carving up the Arab land once the Ottomans had been defeated in the south, southern part of Europe. It's funny, they didn't really care about what was, who was going to run Germany or like Bulgaria. But there was, a, there was a reason behind this, and it wasn't because of the religious reasons. It was because the British had already had a quite heavy invest in the area, and so did the French. If you look at northern Africa at the time, French already owned Algeria. And the right, British yeah. already owned Egypt. Yeah, they might not sit right on the doorstep of Palestine, but they're still bloody close enough. Even though they're in Africa, they're not exactly Persia or Mesopotamia countries, they're really African. But it still meant that the British and the French felt they had the strongest claims to Palestine, Jordan, Syria and Iraq, like the Ottoman Empire effectively. So they went about, I'm going to put it like this, is they drew invisible lines in the sand. Mm. They started carving up on these large land maps they would take to the meetings and they would start looking at, we could draw a line through there and that changes the boundary of this country. And then I'll draw a line through here. But we have to remember, who were these two men, first of all? Before we know anything about the agreement, who the hell were these two guys? Sykes and Pico. Well, the only much we know about them was the fact that Sykes was actually on the war council in World War One. He was actually assistant to Kitchener. So he sat on the war council, but he, he wasn't like one of the main people. He was like an aide. He was like the young boy about the office. And Sykes is from where? Sorry. And, and Sykes was Sykes was that guy, but Pico from from where? From Britain, you know. He right. was he was the British. Uh, how would you say diplomat? Let's call it that for bargaining with the French. Francois Pico was the French diplomat. Who the he Fre- sounds French? Oh yeah. Well, the, I like the Francois. Francois Pico. I mean, you might have just been called John Paul. Yeah. <laughs> or Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so these two guys, they were chosen by the respective governments. But Pico was an interesting one because he wasn't actually in the French government. He was a diplomat. But because he had aristocracy and a lot of power in his family, even though he wasn't in active government, the French were like, let's use this guy. Because he, I mean, he basically wouldn't take no for an answer. He's, He's a good bargainer. Good bargainer. Whereas the British, they would go with Sykes. And Sykes, funny enough, didn't really know that much about Arabia. I think less so than Pico. Although he actually spent some time there, claimed he knew Arabic, which he didn't, which was a lie, like a bold-faced lie, and actually said that he knew, obviously to the War Council during like the world, end of World War One, said, oh, I know a lot about this area. I spent time here. I know the fucking language. I know what food they eat. It's um, not a good lie to tell. No. Because it's one you're going to get found out for well quick pretty soon yeah i mean this is the clever thing with him actually he knew some arabian phrases so when he would go to meetings he would be like 
I like da 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 da. And I'd be like, oh, oh, look, there he is doing his Arabian again. <laughs> but he just knew phrases. He didn't know nothing about Arabian culture. The pair of them knew nothing about Muslim tribalism or anything to do with what these people were and what the differences were between their cultures in, in the area. Even though they said, oh, it's just Ottoman land, there was a lot of still very small tribal groups within this huge, vast of land. But these guys knew nothing about it. They just sat down at a table and they started going, you have that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like they were pulling quality streets out of a tin. You get the strawberry creams, I'll get the orange creams. Do you want the green triangles? Mm, no, we... you haven't. No, you... What well, about coffee? I hate coffee. coffee. Let's give that to the Russians. No, we don't want to give the Russians nothing. <laughs> well, one of us has got to choose the coffee. So basically, they went about just carving up the land. And the pair of them, even though claimed to both their respective governments that they knew what they were talking about, they didn't. They knew nothing about it. And this is where the, most of the trouble started. Because at the same time, to really understand how this whole Israel thing happened, you actually have to understand something else that happened in World War I, which was obviously the Balfour Agreement. How the two meet are very interesting. Because during the First World War, there were heavy losses in the southern Europe by the British and the Allied forces. Not so much the French, but I think the British at the Battle of Guadalupe lost something like 70,000 troops or something. In, in, I think in like this like, huge, mass victory sort of graves for the Ottomans still at the site in Guadalupe, because it was actually considered a massive victory considering they were losing. So the British realised that they were to truly defeat the Ottomans. They needed not just the support of neighbouring nations, which they got one. There was a man called Sherif Hussein of Mecca, was one Arab leader within the Ottoman Empire who did not like the Ottomans and did not, not like the overrule they'd have of the land. He believed that there would be one leader who would rule it all, not all these separate governments. But so then, it's like Lord of the Rings. Yeah, well, Lord of the Rings. And he said this is the way it should have been because the Ottomans aren't controlling the land like they used to, not how there was like one king and then he had all his delegates and they looked after all the land. He said the Ottomans just weren't ruling things properly. So there was him that the British could thank because he was the only Arab in the Muslim world that revolted from within mm. the Ottoman Empire. He was quite a powerful man. He had a good army behind him. And, and people sort of saw the way he wanted to take... Uh, the country. They thought this is like Tony Blair in 1995. A, a new Labour. A, a new force, you know. Everyone was like, he's the king! <laughs> I guess people who were living under the Ottoman Empire saw this as a new day mm. with, with Sheriff Hussein's ideas of liberation out of the Ottoman Pact. So it didn't take Hussein long to get support from other smaller sort of nations, especially the British. Because the British are like, hey, if you're going to help us, we're going to help you. So, regardless, the French and the British had the Pico-Sykes Agreement. The British actually started bargaining with Sheriff Hussein. Started promising him, if you finish the, off the Ottomans in this area or this area, we will grant you this much land at the end of the war. Which was partly true, because he did receive Arabia. But what the British told him, sort of told him in a letter, they actually sent Sheriff Hussein a letter, and they promised him... Like all these promises, oh, like the Arab state of Levant and everything. But what they failed to tell him is they had already drawn new lines around the land they were giving him. So he must have been looking at an old map dude and being like, ha, ha, ha. Once I finish off the Ottomans, I get all this land. And the British were like, it's not really that big anymore. Because <laughs> they already like <laughs> gone behind their back and redrawn all the boundaries. 
getting to the end of World War One now. So imagine we got the British and the French both bargaining secretly away from the Russians about what lands are going to go to who at the end of the First World War. Which was over 100 years over ago. Over a long time ago. Mm. And if we try to understand just what a f- the importance of a few of these lands were, okay. So we'll take Syria, French Syria. The French saw Palestine, Syria, this area, very important in terms of crusades. And the history, the French had the crusades, well, their marches down into the southern east of Europe. So they really wanted this land. The British obviously were going to bargain hard, but the way they saw it was religious view. We should have Palestine, we should have Jerusalem and Bethlehem, because, you know, there are crusades. The British didn't care about the Arabs, the Jews, the French, no one. All the British cared about was imperialism. The British really wanted the land because during the First World War, obviously, they already had Egypt, so they had one side of the Suez Canal. So effectively, if the British were to own Palestine, that they would also have the other side of the Suez Canal. And therefore, Britain ultimately would own the trading rights from the Northern Hemisphere to the South. So Britain was like, yo, we can't give up Palestine that easily. The French didn't want to give it up either. Britain knew also, being one of the first navies to start using oil instead of coal in their warships at the end of the First World War, the oil-rich reserves down in Kirkuk, Presbyterian, Iraq, uh, all through Bag- you know, Iraq, Baghdad, oil-rich region- regions, if they had access to this through a mandate, they could secure oil reserves for God knows how long, mm. which was very important. Reminds me of more recent wars that were uh, uh, mainly about oil as well. Yeah, well, only, only just this year, wasn't it? Yeah. Or last year, Ukraine, Russia, pipelines. It's no different. Yeah, it's and a- when they were invading the Middle East after 9-11, yeah. how many people, I know this is very sort of base level, but how many people do you hear say, oh, that was all just about oil and money and resources? Yeah, well, in the case of the end of the First World War, if they'd said it was all about oil, they were pretty accurate. Because the British were like, we're not going to give up Palestine. So what you have to understand now, we have, we have a loggerhead here between two allied nations who both actually, when winning the war together, they don't want to start beefing. But the British knew this, how important this piece of land was and they did not want to let it go. They couldn't just say, oh, we're going to take it for the oil because the French would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. we want some of that oil. We can't just take it for the seaways. Whoa, 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 we want some of the trading routes. But Britain had to think of another idea. How can we get this land under British control mm. but without the French... Knowing why we really, really want it. Really want it. Yeah. And which wasn't easy. So what did they say? Enter Zionism. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yes, here we have it, is the rise of Zionism. This, in effect, along with the Pico-Sykes Agreement, would pretty much make itself into the Balfour Declaration, but there are a few things that had to happen first. So the Zionist movement had been cozying up to the Rothschilds family. Letters, sending influential figures over to America... Um, the Zionists knew that the Rothschilds, obviously because they'd funded both sides of the Napoleonic Wars, put this way, we know who those guys are, they run the world, if you want to get something done, you go to them. A lot of people might have heard of this man called Theodore Herzl, and he's considered to be uh, the grandfather of Zionism. So they are a faction of, of Jewish, Jewish people, people. Mm. but it's not like every Jew is a Zionist. No. This is, a, this is an extreme... extreme. 
you know, it's the difference between ISIS and someone just being a Muslim. Yeah. I mean, effectively, all Muslims were Muslims, but not all Muslims wanted to be part of ISIS. And it, and it was exactly the same for Zionism. It's just an extreme faction of Judaism. Judaism, yeah. So, alongside the British losing a lot of battles along that southern part of Europe, they knew they needed help because we need to unite people who would almost go against the Ottomans. Well, bear in mind the Ottomans were Arabs, Arab Muslims. So the British kind of saw, well, if we need an ally, it's going to be an ally of religious sections. It's not going to be anything else. And they knew, especially when there were large, large amounts of Jewish people in Russia, still large amounts of Jewish people living all down through Europe and stuff. And obviously, large amounts of Jewish people are still kind of moving into Americas. So they sort of saw, well, there's a lot of Jewish people across the world. If they were on our side, we could probably topple the the Ottoman Empire a lot easier, right? Okay, the only issue with that is Russian Jews would certainly want the Russians to go all the way down and take all that land. I was like, we can't really have that. We can't really really have even like the Jews that are there at the moment. But what we maybe can do is we can appeal to the Zionist Jews. And how it kind of worked was when Theodore Herzl died, I think he died in 1908, the Zionist political movement was taken over by Heiss Weissmann. And Heiss Weissmann was the man who met with Walter and James Rothschild and talked to them about speaking to the British about enabling a place for Jewish people to go to. Because inside every Jew was a Zion, a Zionist, which was completely untrue. But he sold it very well. You know, he said, no, 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 you understand. Like, it's like part of the Torah we've forgotten. You know, everyone's forgotten it, but deep inside, every Jew is a Zionist. And it's like, no, they're not. So it was a bit rich for the successor to Theodore Herzl, you know, Weissman himself, to start claiming such things. Cause but the claim is based off of this belief that it's their land <clears throat> because it's prophecy. Prophecy. And it, and it was... It's, it's holy land, so it, it belongs to them. It doesn't matter... What what the country's called or who is there, they have the rights to it because they are the chosen people. Absolutely. That's, that's basically what it, yeah, their belief is. Absolutely, mate. And because of this prophecy and this biblical promised land, uh, they felt that they had the right to Palestine because it was called Palestine and it wasn't called Israel. It was mm. called Palestine. Although I will agree with some because I actually have looked over a few texts and... Israel, it was once called. It's not like Israel came out of nowhere, it, what, since 1948. No, Israel has, has been a... And how, how long ago Go are we talking there? Thousands of years, I mean, since the dawn of their religions. Right. You know, so. But a lot of places have been called something else at a different <laughs> point in time. doesn't mean you can walk in there and go... Uh, do you know what this was called a few thousand years ago? No, it's called my place, so fuck off. <laughs> It's got my home now. You're like just bursting into a house that you used to live in. I used to live here. So what? So fucking pack your stuff and leave. <laughs> and be really careful when you close that front door because the hinges are loose. Well, they were. Well, they were. Oh, you fixed them. Oh, you bastard. <laughs> so effectively, the British, they were very cunning. It's, it's so British. And anyone who says, I love being a British patriarch, you don't. Because the amount of trouble we have caused across the world we will never quite ever pay back for. So the British 
received the letter, and this is how the Bellflower Declaration came into it. Whilst the British and the French were still suffering losses and still trying to figure out how to carve up all this territory, along comes a letter, and it's addressed to Arthur Balfour, who is Foreign Secretary for the British Government. He's obviously sitting with Kitchener on the War Cabinet at the time. They are losing, well, not necessarily losing the war, but they're definitely making losses in Southern Europe. This is an interesting letter because it comes from Walter and his son, James Rothschild. And they tell uh, Mr. Balfour how they've been speaking to Heinz Weissmann of the Zionist political movement and how Weissmann has told them the way to unite the Jewish nations and in retrospect would help win the war. And not only that, through the Rothschilds, let's say, affiliation would also bring the Americans into the fold. The British would get support from the Jewish nations. The Weissman pretty much was head of the Zionistic movement, so he, he reckoned he was speaking for all of them anyway, and so did they. They thought, oh, he's, this is the guy who's like their spokesman, even though he wasn't. But they, they said, well, we will basically tell the, the Jewish nations to join the Allied cause, and alongside this you will get the uprisings within the Ottoman Empire, where there are Jewish clusters. This will ultimately topple the Ottomans and we will be able to, you, as in the French and the British, will be able to break up their land successfully and then you can deviate out until you get the Jewish nations from Northern Europe to the Middle Europe to the Levant to unite, the Ottomans will never be broken. So the Britons, well, not be funny, it was a good plan, they agreed to it because they thought, you know what, we kind of need this support. And also, Weissman also had the Rothschilds on his side, and the Rothschilds were pretty much representing America. We have the chance of bringing in Americans as well, and in that time... In the early, and they can just bankroll the whole, the whole thing. thing anyway. Yeah. Because obviously the Rothschilds are very powerful. So the British sort of... Saw this, very rich! Yeah, I mean, they saw this as an opportunity, and they were like, you know what, we could get the fucking Rothschilds in here, man. And not knowing what the Rothschilds were capable of, even though they'd borrowed money off them for two centuries, they thought... This must be the right plan. This must be the plan that the British would, one, take the full control of that area off the French. It's what they wanted. Mm. But the way the British would be able to do it in a way that wouldn't make it look sneaky. Because we're having to do it for a reason. Oh, we need this land now because we made a promise to these people. And that was the Bellflower Declaration at that moment. That letter was sent from, obviously, Weissman to Bellflower asking about if the Jewish nations would be able to move into Palestine, which would be perceived then forth as the naturalised home for all Jewish people. And this was a bit more 1948, but in the end for a right to return. Mm. Okay, and, and the British would make a mandate for Palestine in which the British would help Jewish people return. And not only would they help Jewish people return, they would also push out Palestinians. They, they just signed it on the spot. But in the letter was something quite important because it actually was written in, in a very sort of sly way that said none of the non-Jewish entities or groups of that area would not be affected and would not lose their land. The strangest thing about this very short 68-word letter, it's very short, was it talks about the non-Jewish entities. Now, bear in mind, that area was only about like 10% Jewish. It was very small. Arab Muslim majority, and still small, but Christian, Christianity as well. 
But the Arab Muslim was definitely the overwhelming religious mm. occupation there. But in the letter, they made it out like the Arab Muslims were the second nation there. Like, oh, there's already loads of Jews there already. Oh, like the, the Palestinian Muslims, there's hardly any of them. But it was a tiny percentage. It was a tiny percentage. But in the letter, it was almost like it was written in such a way where it didn't acknowledge the rights of anyone other than the Jewish Zionists who would move back, effectively. They said, well, it's written in such a way that the representation of Arab Muslim nations would not be heeded by any nation that read the letter because it wasn't accurate enough. It didn't say, oh, Arab Muslims in Syria, stay here. It was like, we're going to bring the Jewish people in and you have to make land for them. At the same time... You're also going to have to push out all the people in this land because, by the way, it's your mandate. It's the British mandate for Palestine. So even though you're moving Jewish people in, it's not the Jewish mandate. It's not, not well, it's certainly not Jewish, but it's not even the Zionistic mandate. It's the British mandate. You've agreed to do it. Mm. So the British then were kind of in the Rothschild's pocket as well as the Zionists' pocket. And they had no choice but over the next few years to move about 700,000 Palestinians out of Palestine. And where it, did they go? They were, uh, they were basically refugees. So all and over? All over the place. They, they pushed them out into Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, some you know, into Arabia. They went very far. And they effectively said, we've got to take this land because we have made this promise to the Zionists that will give them this land. You can imagine how upsetting that must be. And, dude, like we said earlier, this was a hundred, over 105 years ago. Mm-hmm. You were that Palestinian man. Hey, what are you doing here? This used to be my house. I don't think so. My family lived here for 100 years. It's like, well, actually, my family lived here a 1,000 years ago. I just want it back now. And it's sort of like, yeah, it doesn't really work like that. No. I mean, one thing I will say about between the Pico-Sykes agreement and... and Everyone can look at this on YouTube. I mean, it's not hidden. All this history is out there, and it tells you how this whole chaos just started because of the British, ultimately, making the mandate for Palestine, but also for our mugginess, for listening to the Rothschilds, Mm. who would effectively say that we needed to do this because if we didn't do this, we wouldn't get the support of the Jewish nations. Kind of reminds me of, like, say, in Game of Thrones, when they're all going at war with each other and they go to the Iron Bank. Mm, yeah. It's kind of what like the Rothschilds yeah. is like, right? Yeah. Because not that you're taught this at school, but they effectively funded both sides of both world wars. Mm. So who's really in charge? Who's really got the power? And I'm not saying for one second it ends with the Rothschilds. I know that there's a whole you know, dynasty of, of different families, families mm. but it's kind of mind-blowing because... This is the stuff that no one ever talks about. It's just the good guys and the, the bad, bad guys. guys. You know, yeah. in the case of World War Two, you've got the British and the Allied forces versus Hitler and the Nazis. You're not really told who's funding both sides and yeah. what's going on like beyond that kind mm. of surface level that every history documentary is about. But there's there's a deeper level to all of it. Like wars are basically won by the sounds of it from stuff that goes on behind the scenes, meetings. Well. I couldn't help but think this is what happened in World War One, especially with the, the the absolute crushing collapse of the Ottoman Empire, because the Ottomans had control of that region for five hundred years. Wow. 
like a long, long time, they united all the, the Muslim Arab nations and they called it the Ottoman Empire. Something else actually happened just before the beginning of the First World War, which was the Balkans War. And this is the first Balkans War, which is, I think, it finished in about 1912. Now, during this war, just before World War I, the Ottomans had lost great swathes of land to the Russians during the Balkans War. That effectively already shown that the Ottomans were weak. Even though they were, they were vast, they weren't as powerful because the Ottomans effectively were like the Turks. But I think it's just because of how large they were. Maybe it was kind of hard to control such mm. vast amount of armies and stuff. Maybe it did need to be like Sheriff Hussein said, split into smaller countries and have a ruler from every country but had been given that rule from the guy at the top, which, of course, Sheriff Hussein wanted to be that guy. So we had this event in the Balkans, the end of the Balkans War in 1912, just before the start of the First World War. This had already shown that the Ottomans were weak and they could be toppled. Even though they had, they had a huge amount of land across the whole of Europe, they were weak. And I think the British and the French knew, with the help of the Russians, they would be harder to conquer than the Central Powers. But once they did, the land was worth a lot more. Now, the land in Germany and, and Hungary that wasn't worth anything, but the value of the land down in the Arab Levant was almost priceless. And is that because, A, it's mineral rich, so that, you know they're, they're getting it for the resources, but B, it was, as you said, like this main trading route, route. that would have been invaluable. Mm. And don't, don't forget, the Zionists would have known this. The Zionists would have known the British would have really wanted the mandate from Palestine. So it was almost like a perfect storm. We'll approach the British while they're weak. They've lost the Battle of Guadalupe. We'll send them a letter and say, hey, we can help. But you've got to promise us something first. Because we can unite the whole nations of Judaism under Zionism, which no Jew had ever heard of. You know, unless you're someone sucking a cock of Theodore Herzl. I wonder if they got many blowjobs in the 18th century. Don't know. But my point being, unless you were someone like that, no one had ever heard of it and no one even cared for it. So what happened after so after World War One? We had the Belfast Declaration, which effectively and that was pretty much at the end of the First World War. As the British moved into Palestine, they started to bring their troops with them for imperial rule and started at the same time allowing for Jewish people to return. It was not easy. I know one thing from the early parts of this conflict, it's not like the British did this with ease. There were huge revolts. In fact, Britain really didn't have very good control over Palestine, I think for about 10 years, just before the start of the Second World War. It took them a long time trying to stop the revolts, the hit squads, you know. There, there were a lot of really dark things happening in the country. And this is still way before the formation of the United Nations. What people have to understand... Because that was after World War Two. World War Two. Mm. What people have to understand is, during those years, between the end of the First World War and the end of the Second World War, ultimately the formation of the United Nations, only thing they did in 1948 that was different prior to the 30 years before it, they basically made what they were doing legal. Mm. To move people back, to throw people out their home, and no questions would be raised. Even back way before the Second World War, the international community struggled with this idea that the British were facilitating a move 
for Jewish people, but at the same time, they were throwing out hundreds of thousands of Palestinians out their homes. Mm-hmm. And the saddest thing actually about this, and I kind of took a bit of a deep dive, because we're going to get onto the more the recent history of really the conflict is what we've seen recently in the papers. Because we could spend a long time talking about the Balfour Declaration and even Sykes Pico. But effectively, a lot of the evidence is out there and you can draw these lines in the sand for yourself and, and see hey, how, hey. Hey, and just see how the lies of the French and the British effectively got us into a century of bloodshed. Mm. You know, and we did it to effectively win the First, first World, World War. War and put together this deal with both the Rothschilds and Zionists mm. to get the backing that we needed. You know, they also robbed Sharif Hussein of his promised land. He only got Arabia, which caused a lot of problems for the British, even though they've been quite close to the Arabs now, of more recent times. During sort of 1912 up to the Second World War, um, the British were, uh, how do we put it, in a lot of trouble? <laughs> down in southeastern Europe. They're in a lot of trouble, and a lot of problems to deal with. That's what you get for stealing land. <laughs> so the British had a lot of problems dealing with the control of this mandate right up until the Second World War. And, of course, this definitely wasn't made better because I'm not going to go into the Second World War when it comes to Hitler and his disdain for the Jewish nation. But my point is it doesn't help really tell the story from the beginning Because even then, someone could say, well, the British turned their back on the Jews at the beginning of the Second World War. I mean, the Britain actually did not help facilitate the move of any Jewish people out of Germany. And a lot of people thought, oh, they turned their back on them. Bear in mind, like, they promised that we're going to help move you guys all down to Israel. They believe they're not helping them. It's actually kind of when the Americans came in. The Americans almost put their arm around the Zionists. were like, well, the British ain't going to look after you. We will. And effectively, the formation of the United Nations sealed that because of all the pro-American Zionists that were on that United Nations War Council. There was no way in hell they were not going to serve the Zionist movement. Bearing in mind, they've got a chance to ultimately, finally take that land for once and for all. Mm. By declaring it the state of Israel, it is no longer Palestine. So... If you live in Israel, you are an Israeli. You're no longer a Palestinian. And obviously, after what happened to the Jews in the Second World War with the Holocaust and all the rest of it, I'm guessing there wasn't going to be people putting up too much of a fight God because no. they're going to be thinking, well, they had, had you know quite a hard time. I mean, cracky, like a genocide was committed against them. And the, the saddest thing is Hitler cons- committed a genocide against a a race of people, but it was against all Jews. It wasn't just against the Zionists. And, and of course, you know, you have to put your hands up because it was a terrible time for, for the Jewish people. Who would want to stop them having a place of their own after the Second World War, especially after what Hitler put them through? Yeah. It makes you realise, actually, how wars effectively destroy the old status quo mm. And a whole new one can be brought in to replace it. So in the First World War, like you said, they were drawing lines in the sand and dividing all the land up. Then certain groups and bodies were being formed. And you saw that even more after the Second World War, when you had not only the formation of the UN, but the WHO and the Trilateral Commission and all these other like 
unelected governing bodies. It just makes you realise everyone is so devastated after a war, you can get away with a lot of stuff. And no one really seems to put up much of a fight because, firstly, they're just totally exasperated. And secondly, you can do it under the guise of, well, we're doing this to make the world a safer place so we don't have another world war. Mm. Well, that was the whole idea behind the United Nations. If we all have a representative from every country in Europe in the United Nations, Mm. instead of us going to war, your man goes and meets my man, they'll speak in an office for half an hour, share a cigar and a whiskey, and say, let's not go to blows, let's just trade this over corn and rice. And effectively, it won't happen anymore. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's under the guise of perceived safety and people's fear of my god we can't go through that again what is to be done don't worry we've got it all under control we're going to unite for peace and prosperity and Mm. to make sure this never happens again makes you wonder if the whole point of world wars is to not only depopulate the planet but to create these situations where they can put in a whole new system of control and inch closer and closer to a one-world government. Oh, absolutely. And I think the Rothschilds... I mean, David Icke coined it as Rothschild Zionism, and I think David's very accurate because they were the ones that brought this up to the, up to the, the front. Why wouldn't the Rothschilds want the Zionists on their side? I mean, they don't want to make enemies of them. I mean, the, the idea of Zionism is quite sexual. <laughs> to the Rothschilds, they were just thinking, more money, more land, more control. Yes, please. I, I must admit, I could imagine James and Walter Rothschild were sitting at the table and it just went, boink, and raised an inch. <laughs> mm. I wonder if Weissman just went... I saw that. (laughs) So I have your support. (laughs) There's clearly some support down there. (laughs) I guess you could say we're holding each other up. So we could talk about Balfour Declaration and the Psycho Peaks Agreement all day. But if it's a history lesson, we've gone through the First World War, Second World War, by the time 19... 48 had arrived. A lot of the infighting was continuing within the Arab nations, whose ruler was going to rule what land, because a lot of that area is still very, very divided. I mean, they did a terrible job of it at the end of the First World War. Such a British and French thing to do. At least we were better at colonising than the French. Not that that's a good thing. But we're up to 1948. The United Nations are pretty much declared now the state of Israel. Jewish immigration has been fully legalised. Uh, the right of passage and return has been allowed. If you're a Palestinian at this point, uh, you are just praying they're not moving too close to your settlement because it looks like there's a good chance you're going to lose your home, just like your relatives have been losing their home for about 30 years prior to you. A lot of Jewish people don't agree with the uh, right to return. You know, they don't agree with Zionism. There's plenty of people within Jewish establishments who don't agree with this. One thing I'll bring up very briefly is this uh, notion of the Christianity within the region. Okay, so here's something interesting, dude. In Palestine, most Christians do not agree with the Zionism notion, the right of return. In fact, most Christians are actually on the Palestinian side, the Muslim side. I watched a great documentary, actually, of a Christian father of a church in Palestine, and he was saying how the Zionist army come in, you know, threaten to say, if you invite Muslims into this congregation, you know, we'll close you and stuff. 
he understands why the Zionists are doing what they're doing and he is totally at the, the help of his Muslim brothers and then good on him for so. But, this is where things get really weird, over in America, if you're an evangelical Christian, mm. you believe in the right of return for Jewish people. Because you believe, as part of your faith, it is you have to protect them or almost help guide the way for them, make the way for them. Mm. And we know evangelical Christianity is huge in America. And there we are once again, why the Americans are helping the Zionists. However, you've got the same Christians, because they're still meant to be Christians at the end of the day, actually living in Palestine who completely disagree with their evangelicals. Well, because they're seeing it firsthand. Yeah. It's so more like visceral for them. Yeah. They're like living it. There's pastors and pastors of evangelical congregations so all across YouTube denouncing Islam and everything. These guys, these white privileged guys eating their fat foods have never lived in Gaza. The same way Mark Sykes, I should call him Sir Mark Sykes because he was knighted. But my point is, it's the same way Sykes manipulated the people within the war cabinet claiming he knew about something he had no idea about. Mm. It's like the same bag of tricks, you know, once again. If you just look at that idea of the fact that three warring uh, religions could actually somehow see the conflicts within each other's, and the fact that one religion, Christianity, would be split between believing that the Zionists have the right of the turn and they don't. Mm. Which, which, which I did find very bizarre when I saw some of these pastors in America giving these speeches. And if you look at the modern day, nothing really happened after 1948 other than the Arab nations kept warring. America kept getting involved right up, <laughs> yeah. right up until 1967, like the Civil War, when they won like five battles in six days. Um, with the help of the American army, the Israelis pushed back the borders of Israel. They took large amounts of land away from Syria, Iraq. They effectively redrew the lands of Israel again in 1967. And that was a very turbulent time for the Jewish nation because they had the warring sites of Egypt and everyone who didn't want them there. But the Americans were just like, no, nah, don't worry, we got your back. And they helped them defeat. I mean, Israel's a tiny country if you compare to all the other Muslim mm. and Arab nations. So they've got big brother yeah. on their side. Big bully brother. I mean, you've seen the pictures of the American warships. And they're like, the, the biggest ever. Yeah. Whatever. And they look like, um, unbelievable. Like like planes air, are just landing yeah, on these Yeah, like those aircraft carriers. Yeah, yeah. Like, huge. And then we spoke about in the previous episode, America's like letting off nukes in the ocean. Almost as like a, just a vulgar display of power. Power. Just because we can. <laughs> but yeah, they, they care about the environment, by the way. But um, Worst recyclers in the world. <laughs> yeah, you get a real idea of the, the force that America is and having them on your side is kind of like having the biggest bully in the playground oh, with and, you. Yeah, and even if they do touch you, there is that absolute imminent fear that when Big Brother does come come round and eventually catch up with you, you're going to get bashed hard. Mm. And effectively, the Americans supported the Israelis very well. I mean, the British, I mean, we kind of let go of our support for British Palestine. That all died in the 30s and 40s. By then, the Americans within the, the Rothschild 
and Zionistic movement, I mean, Israel's power was all coming from America then, and from inside with its own rise of a Zionist government, which, of course, Benjamin is uh, carrying on to this very day in current Israel. You know, hardline right-winger. I don't know what the equivalent of he... He's probably like a mini-Hitler of his own, really. <laughs> it's kind of weird, you know. We were talking about this. You know, if you look at the current day, especially after what's just happened, it's like the, Z- the Zionist Jews in Israel now are now, like, become the Nazis. And now the Palestinian Muslims who have to live in the walled-up cities. Anyone, take a video on YouTube, have a look at the state of Bethlehem and Jerusalem with the walls they've put up. I've, I've heard it called the the largest, uh, the world's largest open-air prison. It is. It's scary to go through these checkpoints, full facial recognition systems, full body scanning. Uh, these guys... You said it was like total recall. Recall. Everyone remembers that scene when Arnie goes downstairs and he's on the run because he kills those guys and he goes through that like infrared like wall scanner and you can just see the gun on him. You can actually see his skeleton, can't you? <laughs> but you see like, the gun. Beep, beep. The Palestinians, when they have to go from, and this is in with, within one city, they might have to pass through 10 Israeli checkpoints just to go to work. Mm. And every time you get, you could get stopped there for five minutes, you could get stopped there for an hour, and you don't get to say shit. It's what them Israeli soldiers want you to do. You don't get, you don't get to do shit in Israel. Yeah, I've like seen some horrific footage of like these huge, like riot police looking dudes, like storming into like a little town basically and just like beating these jews like fiercely just because they're supporting palestine yeah but that video was viral on twitter wasn't if it if you want like a visual representation of the difference between jews and zionists just just watch a video of yep. some hardcore zionists like riot cops like yeah. beating the shit out of more traditional yeah. looking Jewish people with like the little hats on going, no, please. Yeah, shalom, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, and these, and yeah, I mean, that one made waves on the internet because this was, this is what we wanted to say in this episode was this history is huge. It's not just the current events you have to look at, it's the history. But if you do look at current events and not just the Western media, because they'll just feed you the same shit over and over again. If you find that clip, and you can clearly see Jewish guys holding up Palestinian flags, they clearly feel for their brothers over there. And, yeah, riot police is coming in, smashing the pieces, and you're just like, well, there you are. So fast forward in, in time to the most recent attacks that really sparked this whole thing off again. What did you make of that? Because, you know, you just talked about how high level the security was. Does it make a lot of sense that this attack happened or does it look likely that it was allowed to happen because they've got state-of-the-art security? Well, it it is strange. It is strange, you know, because honestly, this doesn't happen often, does it? How often do you hear of a full-scale attack from Hamas on Israel? Yeah, you get the odd RPG over the boundary. Incoming! Yeah. Right, exactly, yeah. And it, it and it kind of reminds me of what happened on 9-11 with NORAD when they didn't get called out. Usually these F-1 fighter jets would come out or whatever and they would go alongside the plane and bring it down. And this, this even happened, we spoke about this in our 9-11 episode, right, where there was a plane that flew just a little bit too close to one of George Bush's ranches once. It was like a 
independent flying oh, yeah. plane and NORAD was called out and yeah, brought, yeah. brought the plane down. So 9-11 wouldn't have happened on any other day because NORAD would have stopped it. But that day, hmm, just yeah. they just went through. They, they never even got the call out. And that's how this kind of feels to me. It's, it's like, oh, on this day, they just managed to pull the whole thing off. They weren't even alerted. In fact, it went on and on Whoa. for... How long well, before they were alerted? Well, like hours, and it, I don't want to say suspiciously, but it did suspiciously fall on that Jewish holiday as well. So what better time to cause international outcry? The fact that there's so many of those things coinciding together, the fact that so many people got supposedly kidnapped, and where the hell were the Israeli army, considering these guys, there's much more of them than Hamas. There's, I mean, they, they, if Hamas have, are like a band of pantry raiders, Israeli are like, army are like the dogs. These guys have got like a state-of-the-art weaponry, rifles, body armour, kit. Hamas are like, it's basically almost like us sending the SAS to fight the bloody Taliban. <laughs> We've got M16s, they've got slingshots. <laughs> so there needs to be like a full inquiry done in, into it for sure, because there's a lot of question marks there. Yeah. And then we were kind of saying earlier, to a, to a point it's sort of irrelevant, because it's just cause, cause and effect. Like, what is this being used to now do? Now, that event could have been a, a false flag one. It could have been, let's just say, if not an inside job, allowed to happen. Careful. <laughs> and... There being no response would lead you to believe that, and the kind of timing of it off the back of COVID, the Ukraine and Russia conflict, now this feels like they've got humanity against the ropes and they're hitting us with one thing after the next. For me, I, I kind of lean towards it being a false flag, but I guess it's kind of irrelevant when the, outcome's the, the war same. machine keeps turning. The outcome was the same. At the same time, I don't know what I think. When it first happened, I was obviously appalled. Just because I'm against Zionism doesn't mean I felt terrible to see, you know, families being butchered, the Hamas just coming over and doing all that stuff because... Oh, it's awful. Yeah. They were killing innocent people. This is the thing. They weren't yeah. just targeting army targets. They were targeting civilians. But, but similar to the start of the Ukraine war... There was a load of sto- really outrageous stories that come out that later on was proven. Oh, no, they weren't actually true. Like the start of the Ukraine war, you had the ghost of Kiev, the, yeah. the fighter, then this island, what was it called? Some, some Snake Island. Snake Island that they were going to explode and they were sending out an SOS saying, please don't do it, but they did it anyway. Oh, that was all fake. And similar to this, there was there were stories. They're like beheading babies. They're doing this, they're doing that. But a lot of it was like, oh, no, that's proven to be just mm-hmm. propaganda. That's not true. That was just put out on the internet, but it's fake. And, but this was being reported even on the news and things. But it's like straight away, it's, a, it's so similar to what we've already seen. It doesn't give you much confidence, does it, in the reporting of a very hostile situation where all you would like is the truth? Mm-hmm. And you get fed a story. I would believe Hamas have killed people. And for that, you know, I denounce them and they're abhorrent and anyone who done that should actually pay for his crimes. But then you tell me they've done something even more abhorrent and evil and then it makes me hate them more. And then I think, oh, they truly are evil. But then but that turns out not to be true. And then I don't want to do that because then I'd like, I don't want to support either side. I actually would like both of them just to shake hands and make peace. When this news story broke, it was so vicious because the idea that they'd 
you know, they'd kidnap people and the way they'd supposedly killed babies. From a person's point of view looking in, how could you not say, oh, I take a side? Mm. You know, what, are you, what, you're not, what, you're not going to hate the guys who kill babies? Yeah. I mean, what are you, some kind of psychopath? You know. But then in turn, the response has been the same. It's been bombing places where Palestinian civilians, and you're seeing clips of women and children and under the rubble and they're mm. getting killed and injured and maimed and it's just like horrific and you're like okay so you're you're being asked to pick a side but it's like both sides are killing babies yeah. <laughs> and like ah oh. and it isn't 50 percent of the population in gaza children or something yeah out- and, outrageous like that and and gaza's tiny the Gaza Strip's such a small piece of land, it's tiny. Like, when they say they're doing carpet bombing there, it must be the equivalent of you running to the other end of your living room. Now, I have heard the argument, and I've heard people like Ben, ben Shapiro talk, talk about this, that, um, well, Hamas hides their weapons... And caches and their bombs. Yeah, under schools and hospitals and th- things like this. They're effectively using their own children as human shields, which, okay, yeah... That sounds absolutely despicable, right? But they're obviously in a position where they're like, we have to do this because they have no choice. They don't have this world army back in the month. It's like the reason people have to do these abhorrent terrorist kind of shit is because... Backed into a corner. They're backed into a corner. They don't have any air bases. They're like, if we just put these weapon caches or whatever, like, out in the open, something like... They're just going to obliterate them. <laughs> so, well, at least if we put them here, then we give them no choice but to kill civilians, and then we can use that as propaganda. Like, I get it sounds terrible, and I'm not saying it isn't, but it's just a war manoeuvre from a side that doesn't well, have much at their disposal. Yeah. The, the Vietnamese did the same with the punji sticks in Vietnam, even though they were didn't have the, be- the better weaponry, and the Americans could certainly just keep drafting men and bring them over... But the, Vietnam- the Vietnamese made the best of their jungle that they knew and mm. using weapons that would not just kill men but would maim them and slow them down. Yeah, like wouldn't, wouldn't the like, punji sticks have like human feces on them? And, and not only, so it wouldn't kill you outright. You would land on it. Mm. You would get your leg infected yeah, with feces. You'd slow, slow the team down. Uh, yeah. Two guys would have to carry you. You're not just taking one man out. You've taken three out. Mm. The Vietnamese were bloody smart yeah. like that. Or they would send a child into a camp, and but they'd have a bloody bomb structure bomb on. or yeah. something. And, yeah. you, and you think, oh, animals, we, what these people would do that? And it's like, how desperate have you got to be to do, do that? that? You think they want to do that? Yeah. They're left with no choice. That's how desperate they are. Oh, well, that's just barbaric. Like, who would do that? Well, you might do it if you were in the situation. Yeah. You don't know. And war is barbaric. That's why I find it hilarious sometimes, the idea of, like, war crimes or whatever. Like, it's like you're in a war, but someone's like, no, come, come on, that's out of order. <laughs> it's like if you're in a fight with someone, but they, like, grab your nuts or something. Like, he's, oh, he's gone too far. Not the nuts, mate. Come on. <laughs> come on. It's like you're having a fucking war to the death. Oh, no, but that's, that's naughty. You can't do that. I mean, I get it, because some things are just so abhorrent, you're like, that shouldn't, you know... Happen. But then war shouldn't happen. happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we will talk about a bit of the response, but one thing that gets overlooked quite a lot in the media, because obviously we talk about Israel versus Hamas, <laughs> bearing in mind, Israel is meant to be the country, and Hamas is meant to be a political group. 
it's not really a country versus a political group. Although technically, I guess you could say it is. But we didn't always have Hamas in control of the Palestinian side because the Israelis obviously have their own elected government, which is Benjamin... I can't pronounce his surname. His mob of evil Zionists. They obviously do the Israeli law and control their, their well, I guess, rule of the land. And the Palestinians have their own elected government, which is, of course, Hamas. Palestinians didn't always have Hamas. The other controlling party, or political group, shall we call it, was the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organisation. PLO was run by Yasser Arafat. Do you remember that guy? Mm. He had, like, the headdress, uh, red, red and white, and like, the white goatee. He was in command... Strong from, look. Strong look. Very strong look. Strong man, you know. The PLO were Palestine's... The Palestine Muslims, they, they were their best hope for an equal and fair society. Because even though they didn't always get what they want, Yasser Arafat was a hard bargainer. He, he didn't roll over. But not only did he not roll over, he told the PLO not to resort to violence when it come to bargaining with the Israelis. Because the Israelis would always use the excuse of violence for the backing of the Americans to say, this is why we will pretty much continue our apartheid. Because every time we uh, come to you for peace, you shoot some rockets at us and we go, you guys aren't interested. So when Arafat had the PLO, he, he tried to keep a tight grip on his political organisation because he didn't want anyone from within, below him, destabilising what he was trying to do. He was trying to get the Palestinian people a good deal living under occupation because this was going through like the 70s and the 80s and by then most of Israel was still getting swamped in by Zionist returns. So Arafat was a good fit for them. He Obviously he wasn't going to live forever. <laughs> so the emo version of the Oasis classic. <laughs> <laughs> Big shout to My Chemical Romance and Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> Match up. Match up. But with Arafat, he was the best chance uh, the Palestinians had. Unfortunately, the Americans knew this. The Americans were very cunning. They knew Arafat was like, as long as the PLO were in control, they were never going to take full control. They wanted Hamas in control. Because Hamas were like a wild dog. You couldn't bargain with them very well. And these guys were known for their violence. And the reason the Americans wanted Hamas in is to continue the circle of violence. It's nothing to do with finally coming to a peace. The Israelis have never intended to make peace. They've only intended from the beginning, which is a one Zionistic nation. They don't care about that at all. It's not even on their radar, as far as they're concerned. Which Not the people. Not the people, not the people necessarily. Yeah, yeah. But having Hamas as the political leading party in Palestine, or, so I say, Palestine, in Israel for the Palestinians, there would never be peace. And bearing in mind, it was the Americans that wanted the PLO out and Hamas in. What does that tell you about what the Americans want in Israel? They want the bloodshed to continue so they can continue their apartheid. It is very simple, as far as I can see. I mean, if anyone out there thinks I'm daft, crazy mad, be my guest. Well, I think how people get the anti-Semitic cancel thrown their way is because they don't realise the difference between talking about the people in charge, hardcore Zionists, and just what your 
average Jewish person thinks of all of this, whether they're living in UK or in America or they're literally living in the heart of all this conflict going on. Like we said before, there are people people on both sides that sympathise with the other side. Yeah. Ordinary people, they just want peace. They don't want their children to be getting killed and their families to be taken away from them and booted off their land and stuff. It's, it's awful to see. It really is. But where do you, where do you see this going from here? <laughs> it does seem like a never-ending perpetual cycle of violence. I think as long as Hamas stay in control, it will just continue. You probably saw like the Israeli army, obviously since this obviously terrible things happened, getting extra funding for the Americans, they're going to have that whole new advanced laser system that can effectively knock out rockets or anything that comes over any of the walls with direct laser weapons. But, you know, I mean, as much as that's fucking amazing, <laughs> I mean, that's some techie-ass shit. I mean, the Americans are effectively living a Call of Duty modern warfare now, aren't they? You know, they are in the game. They are prestige rank 50. They're running around the map, obliterating everyone. Give you this care package. The next thing you know, you're throwing 50 helicopters in the sky. <laughs> no no one drones. Can, yeah, no drone. No one can touch me now. So in terms of the future for the country, the, the people and the country are two different things. The people, whether they're Jewish or Palestinian, I think they, they're going to always see suffering within their country. That's going to go on for a long time. The international community, dude, is the thing that interests me the most. Because if you look at what happened just after in terms of some people who came out and what sort of support they gave. Now, we talked just about this earlier, the media and the alternative media, mm. their stances. You know, we obviously, overwhelming mainstream media, of course, is all, you know, denouncing Hamas, supporting Israel. There's really not much surprise there. But yeah, but then great swathes of the alternative media are also towing the same line. And people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, that we mentioned earlier, like, they've come out with, like, really strong back in here for Israel, Netanyahu, like Jordan Peterson put up this uh, tweet saying, give them hell, basically calling for the murder of innocent women and children. Mm. So it's like, whoa, what the hell? Because I like agree with Peterson and Shapiro on loads of stuff, but it's almost like we've, we've already had lots of people in the media and alternative media out themselves over COVID yeah. and even the Ukraine war and stuff. And it's almost like this is the final card being played that even people that you thought were, that were people you could have faith in, it's like, oh, you've shown your true colours with this one. Yeah, oh, you feel that way about Israel, do you? Yeah. I mean, Shapiro, I watched his YouTube presentation, obviously about... Solomon's Temple, uh, the right of return. But he was obviously talking about, you know, Jewish clans coming out of the area, you know, way before Islam uh, was ever conceived, which is true. You know, if you do a history lesson, he's, he's not wrong there. He's not, he's not bullshitting. He's, he's, but he's talking thousands of years thousands ago. Thousands of there. years ago. But, but like we, we alluded... Like 5,000 years ago. ago. But we alluded to this earlier. Just because your people were there 5,000 years ago... What does that mean that you get to march into someone's home? How far do you want to go back? Like, it, it literally just ends up being scripture. Yeah. Which like, makes you a Zionist. Because then you then you start getting into, well, it, it's written. and Well, what about ancient uh, Sumerians and Egyptians? 
that lamb was probably theirs before the Jews. So, what, is an ancient Egyptian going to come out of nowhere and be like, right, all the Zionists out. <laughs> we were here first. It's kind of See that it. fucking sphinx we built? <laughs> we stuck that over there. You could go, you could go on and on with this, with this argument. But one thing I found out, and, and this made me a little bit sad, I was watching, I think it was Question Time in the UK, and there were a few uh, Jewish leaders on there speaking out against the occupation, which was great to see on like BBC television. Actually, you know what? It wasn't BBC. It was that channel for Newsnight. That's why I knew it wasn't them bastards. So they had on Newsnight, not that Channel 4 don't spread lies either, <laughs> but, yeah. but they had on Newsnight and uh, they had a few guys obviously going head to head with a few obviously prominent, prominent Jewish leaders believing the right of return. One guy, I, I didn't catch his name of, but he, he was a, a scholar, university scholar, didn't believe in the right of return, but he was Jewish himself. And uh, he had like a presentation on YouTube and I found it and he was talking about uh, the history of, of the area and stuff, which was obviously predominantly Jewish uh, until the arrival of, of Islam. The really heartbreaking thing uh, I found out about this is somewhere like back in like 1400 BC or something, when like it, Islam was making waves and this was going to be big religion, Jewish elders to integrate the Muslim faith easily and without friction from obviously other groups, they would convert and they would learn Islam, even though you could say, oh, but they were Jews originally, but they themselves took it upon themselves to do this because the teachings of Islam were not too different to the teachings of Judaism. Yeah, they're two separate, mm. they're two separate religions. I get that. Anyone's going to say that to me. But if you look at the teachings of any bloody book, it's like one creator, one, you know what I mean? Like all religions follow the same bloody yeah, thing. Yeah, so a lot of them ended up converting. Converting. Well, a, a good few of them. So if you take that back 2,500 years ago, you've actually got uh, Jewish elders converting to Islam, just helping to integrate the faith. If you fast forward, if all their sons and their children afterwards were also fellow converts, right up to the day in Palestine now, you have got Zionist Jews out in Israel who could very be possibly murdering their kinhood. They could be mm. murdering their cousins and their distant relatives. And it's very sad because I'm sure they're aware of this. I'm sure the Zionists are aware of this. But these people actually share blood. They might not now. I'm not saying that now. But I'm saying a long time ago, these guys share blood together. There were, there were lots of is, Islamic elders who have also probably converted to the Jewish faith to help, I don't know, their leaders to understand Judaism within you know, Islamic culture. They, they both had a lot to learn from each other. I think every religion has something to learn from another religion. Where the differences come in is where the trouble comes in. It's history, yeah, it's a small amount of people. And Adam, yeah, you're talking this a long time ago. It doesn't make a difference to me. As far as I'm concerned, you guys were, were family. You know, you were family a long time ago. And now you're killing each other. And I don't think it's because you want to kill each other. We said the average Jew doesn't want to kill the average... Palestinian in the street, probably in Gaza, they're probably neighbours. Mm. But when it comes to the ruling hands above them, with Benjamin's right-wing government and the way they're going to continue the apartheid in, in Palestine, New Israel, <laughs> it's like the new thing, isn't it? New Israel. Yeah, I mean, I don't really see much hope for them, especially if the international community are easily bought, which, fortunately, we can actually probably say something positive about it, 
doesn't seem to be the case. Mm. Because one thing, even though we had this terrible thing from Hamas, people were killed, you know, and, you know, we denounced them for that. But one thing that came out of that was people, I wouldn't so much sympathise or empathise with Hamas, but people weren't as blind as maybe I thought they were. Mm. Because the only reason I went into a mad deep dive on the Belfour Declaration and Pico Sykes, I hope I've even remembered half of the stuff that I researched, it was like an obsession I, I fell into it because I noticed, dude, when this whole thing went off, obviously the Western media was all behind Israel, but there were plenty of people out there supporting Palestine. And this was, this was mm. just after Hamas had committed that atrocity. I've seen more support around here, certainly, where I live. There's Palestinian flags everywhere. Yeah. Seen a lot of stuff stuck up on walls. It's been like real like boots mm-hmm. on the ground, Round like shit. A big Look, movement behind the, it. The protests we've had in London. I'm sure any of our listeners will know across the world for mm. a lot of weekends since this thing went off. There's, there's been resistance from marches all across the UK and major cities in Europe against a Zionistic move, movement into Israel. That they are aware of the history, which I, I wasn't. I mean, you know, mm. only prior to this event, I, I would be naive enough to say. Other than the events of 1948, I really didn't understand the history, which I have a lot better understanding of. I can understand why the Arab Muslims are so angry at the British, mm. you know, and they have been for a long time, and I definitely understand that a lot more now. But not only did it help me understand the conflict better, but also because I saw around me certain prominent figures and people coming out in the news actually standing up for for Palestine, and I was thinking, this is weird. I mean, the biggest one I saw was in the United Kingdom. It's a kingdom of nations. We have this uh, lovely nation called Scotland. Uh, they've got a football team called Celtic, and at one of their games in the European League, they actually had Palestinian flags risen in all the home section. All the Celtic fans. Now, everyone would say, yeah, but Celtic fans will hate anything British anyway, which I'll agree with. But at the same time, I mean, an entire stadium, just just hundreds of Palestinian fans mm. all being held up. And you're thinking, this isn't done out of ignorance. I don't think this is people doing it out of ignorance. I think this is people actually genuinely are starting to wake up and going, no, what they're committing over there is genocide. It's a shame because what is being put out there as is anti-Semitism. Mm. And I've even got some people that are on my course that are Jewish and they've been really affected not only by all the conflict that's going on and this big attack that happened and people they know in Israel know people that have been kidnapped and all, all kinds of stuff. But not not only were they have, have they been affected by the actual conflict, but they said that they were really affected by the pro-Palestinian marches and things because that as a jewish person they felt like it they were under attack and it was against them oh you know how they feel absolutely yeah Yeah. which which i completely understand but like you said you wonder how much of it is is that and how much of it is actually people waking up to something which they would love to brand as anti-semitism but it's it's not that it's it's seeing through the bigger picture anti-semitism uh, is almost like thrown around as easily as racism now, mm. isn't it? You yeah, know? I've heard David Icke call it the anti anti Semitic protection racket. It's like they, they just <laughs> right. They we just throw that anyone that we want to silence. I mean, they do say like if you want to look at 
you know, who's in charge, look who you can't criticise, you certainly can't criticise Zionism. I think that, that's what Kanye... It's kind uh, of alluding to, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and he, like, figured out fast. I mean, I do, I do think it's funny that Kanye, who was, like, really outspoken, saying, like, shortly before this whole massive conflict kicked off, he was saying... Uh, it's Jewish people that run the music industry and the rap industry and look what they're doing through the rap industry. Look what they're pushing on to our people, not their people, yeah. our people. Degratory stuff, you know. Yeah, like the, the thug lifestyle, shooting people, killing people, black-on-black -black crime, gang culture. All this is getting pushed out onto the black community. And what Kanye was saying, what, what he should have been saying really... I think so. He, he wasn't just like zoning in on Jewish people or like the Jews, like yeah. he kept saying. Like, got that what, wrong. What he should have said really is they're not black. Yeah. They do the, the, the people that are doing this to our community, they're not us. They're not the same as us. And they wouldn't want to push it onto their own people. No, hell no. But they're willing to push it onto our people. And he got in serious trouble for that, didn't he? And, and I know he said a, a hell of a lot more than that too, but. He, he, he was in that Alex Jones interview, he's banging on about Netanyahu, mm -hmm. and he was like, really going full, full on. Haven't heard from him since all this has kicked off. No, in fact, if, there, were, a peep. if there was anyone who was going to say something about what happened, it was Kanye West. But he hasn't said a word. Haven't heard from him. He's just like, off on one. I mean, the only time I see him is sort of like from a distance... Or like this this recent thing, we're going off the point a little now, but where, where he's getting a blowjob on a like Rosie and Jim style canal boat yeah. with this woman that no one's ever bloody heard of that supposedly is like new wife, got some like Vegas like ceremony with her or something, <laughs> getting married by Elvis. Oh no, he hates Elvis, doesn't he? Oh, okay. um, <laughs> but I'm supposed to believe that Kanye's getting a blowjob on a canal boat, like where there's paparazzi. He's yeah. got a mask on, so oh, you yeah. can't see that it's him. But they're like, oh, it's him. I mean, I know he's <laughs> no, he's a bit of an unhinged guy, but... Well, firstly, he doesn't look like him, and secondly, I just don't think he'd do that. Don't that. He's got kids. He's got kids, man. I don't, I don't think that kind, that's a Kanye West move. So, yeah, if someone who was, I mean, said some pretty outspoken things about being labelled an anti-Semite, even though, Kanye, you were pretty saying some stupid things about Hitler. I mean, fucking hell. But again, what's that him? But was that him? We don't know. We don't know. Was that just me? At that stage, when he was fully masked up and he did go like, as they say in Tropic Thunder, no, another pretty racist movie, <laughs> he full went full retard. retard. Yeah, and started saying, I love Hitler and all the rest of it. Was that him? Seriously? Oh, yeah, of course it was. What, with the mask and gloves and all the layers over him so you can't even see like how big he is or whatever. Oh, but that's him. Yeah. My point is you would have expected Kanye to have something to say about current events, yet he said nothing. Yeah. yeah. You know, because you, you would want the majority of people silenced before you even went through with the dirty act. Yeah. You know what I mean? You wouldn't want even give them an opportunity to grab their phone and go to Twitter because it's that easy now, guys. But, but what we have noticed, like we said earlier, whether it's people in the mainstream media, celebrities, or even some people in the alternative media, it's, like it's very obvious that there's one side they want you to take and one side that they're trying to push in every way that they can. But like you said, a lot of the boots on the ground stuff ain't that.
No. So it, it kind of gives you some hope because although, like you said earlier, you don't really want to pick sides in something this atrocious and you just want there to be peace. You don't want either side to be killing each other, especially women and children. It's horrendous. The whole thing just needs to stop. But um, at the same time, when the masses are rejecting whatever the popular narrative is, I see that as a good thing. We got it a lot during COVID, didn't we? We got it a lot during COVID. The start of the Ukraine-Russia thing, I don't think people really knew what was going on, but I think people are now even starting to question what's going on there. Yep. People like Zelensky, and they're a laughing stock now rather than some hero. Yeah. And people are starting to go, hang on a minute, how many hundreds of billions have we all sent over there? What the fuck's going on? Like, Especially as, you know, that's supposed to be a real war, but we didn't see... Half the stuff we've seen from Israel and Palestine, I mean, where's all the footage from that war? I know. I mean, we're just told that's going on, but we hardly see anything from it. We, we were actually had a glorified amount of propaganda from the Ukraine conflict. We had the fake gun pictures and everything. Oh, oh. yeah, women clearing out fake rubble that you can see by the way they're carrying it. They're like, whoop de doo like the throwing it in the air. Like, polystyrene. Yeah, it's made out of polystyrene. <laughs> like, so much fake shit that you're like, what the fuck's going on? And then, like, Biden going there and they're like, put on the air raid sirens. And Zelensky's with his army uniform on. Like, the whole thing just looks like a fake setup. You two going there and being like, stand by Ukraine. Like, it's like an episode of South Park. I mean, it stinks. Yeah. And then all the Biden, Hunter Biden links to the Ukraine and oh, it's the like, people trafficking capital of Europe. And it gets more and more dirty. It does. The more you look at it. And who's to say what the truth is with this whole um, recent Israel-Palestine conflict? But there has been, there, there was a ceasefire, right? I mean, yeah. things uh, seem like they're quieting down. Hopefully there can be some peace. I mean, on, on the other end of the scale, we could be witnessing the start of World War Three. We did say earlier, back when we were doing history, you know, in school, we only, we only talked about World War One, World War Two. And possibly how we will never have to face a World War Three because of the formation of the United Nations. Yeah, yeah. and nuclear weapons. weapons. So it'd be like, well, it's like mutually self-assured destruction. If we all just fired nukes at each other. We'd blow the whole world up. So it's kind of like a stalemate mm. in, in chess, yeah. right? And that's at least how I always thought of it when I was growing up. Well, I probably won't see World War Three because I don't believe that all the countries would just nuke each other and just blow the whole world up it wouldn't wouldn't make any sense but what what we were saying earlier is we've now come to realize that really we're, we're kind of in world war three already but it's a covert war using fifth generational warfare which is like biological warfare psychological warfare economic warfare spiritual warfare using the weather using uh, immigration using anything they have at their disposal to take down countries from the inside, even flooding countries with drugs and de destroying them from the inside out. And in that sense, we're already in it. We're already in World War Three. Absolutely. I think now we're just sort of in the in the conflict stage where, where we're seeing actual wars too. But there's a hell of a lot of other stuff going on in the background, which got to be careful this whole conflict doesn't draw, draw you away from. Yeah. Like, this is a huge distraction from other stuff, which is 
going on. It's like the war machine keeps turning, but there's a bigger war going on than this, which is the New World Order. They're speeding towards the finish line. There was a famous computer game for the 90s called Cannon Fudder, and its slogan was, War has never been so much fun. Welcome to America. hope you enjoyed that episode of the schism we've got plenty more episodes on the way in the meantime follow us on our instagram at schism.tv and keep watching the skies